popular kind of program on television these days is what could be called and used to be called the talent competition. Way back in my youth, which is a long time ago, it was called Opportunity Knocks. If you remember Opportunity Knocks, you're quite old. More recently, we've had a plethora of shows, such as Stars in Their Eyes, Pop Idol, Fame Academy. If you don't know what they are, you're also quite old. People in their tens of thousands apply to go on such shows, and millions express their opinion of them by voting for the person they think is the best. All these shows share at least three features in common. First of all, an opportunity for people to display their talents in public. Secondly, a selection process to decide who's the best. And thirdly, a chance for fame and fortune for the winners. My dictionary defines talent as follows. Talent, innate ability, aptitude or faculty, above average ability. Interestingly, as I read down the definition in my dictionary, it said this about the origin of the word. Greek, talenton, a unit of money. The sense was extended to ability through the influence of the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. In the parable of the talents, which Jesus told, talents are not innate abilities, but they are gifts given by God in varying amounts to different individuals. And the point of the parable teaches us that every person is accountable to God for how they use these talents. Now the problem with human nature, with fallen human nature, is that we fail first of all to acknowledge that everything that we have and all our gifts come from God as a gift. And so we use them for our own benefit, for self-promotion, for fame, and fortune, in competition with other people, so that we want to show that we are the best. And that is why these shows are very popular. Now, one of the radical changes that takes place when you become a Christian, and there is nothing more radical that will ever happen to you than becoming a true Christian. So radical that Jesus himself described it in a term that's become much abused now, but Jesus said to a very religious person, it's like being born again. Now, when that radical change takes place, one of the things that happens is that you begin to understand and use your talents and gifts as God intended. You begin to see them as gifts from God, which should be used for the benefit of other people, not for your own self-interest and promotion. That should be the case. The reality is, it is not always the case among Christians and in churches, if we're honest. Now, among the Christians in the church in Corinth, this Greek city we've been looking at, almost 2,000 years ago, the subject of talents, or as they were called, gifts or spiritual gifts, was a hot potato, as it is today among Christians and churches. And so they wrote to Paul, the man who founded their church through his preaching, and asked him about various issues. And one of them that they asked him about was the issue of spiritual gifts. And his answer is a very long answer, much longer than Phil's answers. 
It lasts for three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14. And some people, reading these chapters, have developed a whole sort of system all about spiritual gifts based on these chapters. And they've developed neat systems to explain all the different gifts and how they all fit together and what they all mean. But that is to miss the point. The reason why Paul wrote this is in answer to a question about a problem which was about the abuse of spiritual gifts, the wrong use of them. He is correcting them. He's putting them straight. So, what was the problem? Well, the problem was it was the old talent competition syndrome. In the church in Corinth, the Christians there were focusing in on one particular gift which they were elevating above all the other gifts and promoting the people who practiced and owned this particular gift. This gift, and we'll look at it more in detail later, was the gift, what was called the gift of tongues, which almost certainly wasn't real languages, but was ecstatic speech that people came out with when they met together in church. And along with this was another gift, the interpretation of tongues, because there's no point in speaking an ecstatic language unless you can understand what the speaker is saying. So it needed someone to interpret it. And that is the fundamental issue that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Even the best known chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, the great hymn of love, is not primarily addressed to young married couples at weddings, although it fits very well, and I've spoken at a wedding in this church recently. It's actually written to correct Christians who were using their gifts selfishly and promoting the wrong sort of gift. And Paul is saying to them, the most important thing is love. Phil himself touched on that in the interview. And once again, as we've seen so often in this series, the Christians in Corinth had got their priorities wrong. Hence the title for our series, Keeping First Things First. And so today we begin with Paul's introduction to the subject in our next two studies, God willing, not next week but the week after and the end of the month we'll look at the remaining two parts. But today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, the subject of spiritual gifts and it will really help to have a Bible in front of you so that you know what we're talking about. And there are Bibles in the pews and you need to find the page. It's page 1153. One Corinthians chapter twelve, page one one five three. We're going to read the first eleven verses, and then I'll do my best to try and explain what they mean and apply it to us today. Everyone got it. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, But the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 
To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between Spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Well, this is God's word given through the Apostle Paul all those years ago. Let me try and gather our thoughts by focusing on three important facts about spiritual gifts. Three important facts about spiritual gifts. We begin at the beginning with what I would call the discernment of spiritual gifts. Look at the passage in front of us and Paul opens the subject by saying, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. He writes that he does not want them to be ignorant for the very reason that they are ignorant and he's too polite to say so directly. And rather than just criticising them, he comes alongside them and says, Brothers, here's something I really need to inform you about. You see, we've seen that the Christians in Corinth prided themselves on their knowledge, what they knew. In fact, they knew a lot less than they thought they did and especially in this area of spiritual gifts. They prided themselves on what they knew and what they possessed. And Paul begins here by addressing the broadest perspective of the subject. If you look at verse 1, it says now about spiritual gifts. In the original language, most of you know that the New Testament was written originally in Greek, in the original text there is no word gifts. The word gifts is added by the translators to try and make sense. Literally, Paul says, now about spiritual adjectives, things, matters. That which relates to the spiritual. Now, it could mean, as the NIV, the New International Version, that's the version you've got in in the pews, it could mean, as the translators have added, now about spiritual gifts. But later on, Paul talks in this chapter and in the next verses all about spiritual gifts, and he uses a particular word that we'll come to about spiritual gifts. Here the word is a broad term that is related to spirit in general. In Greek it's the word, one of those words that begins with P that you don't pronounce, pneuma, like pneumatic, yeah? And it relates to spirit with a small s and to the Holy Spirit with a big S. So it's more likely that first of all Paul is talking about, he's saying, now let's talk about spiritual issues here before turning to the more specific matter of specific spiritual gifts from verse 4 onwards. So there's a broad context here, and it's important we get the broad context right at the beginning. And what follows in verses 2 and 3, look at that, it confirms this. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul describes the pre-Christian life of these Christians in Corinth. He says, think what you were like before you came to Christ. Before I turned up in your city. Before you heard me preaching the good news about Jesus and you turned to him in repentance and faith. What was your life like? Well, he says you were pagans, literally Gentiles. That is, people who didn't know the true God. 
And he says, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. The word led astray there is a very interesting word. It's used quite regularly of someone who is captured, imprisoned, and led, astray, and led either to prison or to death. It's actually the same word used of Jesus in Mark's Gospel when he was led away to be crucified. And he says, before you became Christians, you followed mute idols. Now, if you've been in this series, you'll know that Paul has told them that idols, that is, things that people bow down and worship, statues of wood and stone and silver, are not anything. They're just inanimate objects. But you will know that he also says there are spiritual powers, here's the subject, spiritual things, there are spiritual powers that take advantage of this and operate behind these idols of wood and stone and silver and use them as a front. The idols are mute, they can't say anything. But the spirits behind them that sometimes use them, these spiritual, malign spiritual powers, use the idols for their activities. And one of the things that they do is to speak through the mouths of idol worshippers in ecstatic speech. And as we come to the subject of spiritual gifts, you need to recognise, as is still the case today, although people often don't know this, that something like speaking in tongues is common throughout all religious ecstasy, whether it's called Christian or whatever religion it goes under. Demons can speak and can speak through the worshipper. So what is he saying here? He's saying, on this big issue, if someone stands up and speaks an ecstatic language, don't automatically assume it comes from the Holy Spirit. It may be from quite a different spirit. The Christians in Corinth were so impressed with the gift that they forgot to ask questions about the giver. Now this is of the utmost relevance to us today. Not because most of us come from a background like that, some of you may do from different parts of the world. Not because we come from backgrounds where in the religions we came from people spoke in ecstatic language or did strange and wonderful things. But just the opposite. Our background, most of us, is that of scientific rationalism in which such things are dismissed out of hand as superstitious nonsense. Now there is a lot of hocus pocus which is superstitious nonsense, as well as clever tricks that take in the gullible. But when all these things are weeded out, there are things which happen which cannot be explained scientifically, but are supernatural. And there is an increasing appetite in our society for these things. If you tell people there's only the physical, there's only the rational, if you starve them of those things, they will look everywhere for something because we are spiritual beings made in the image of God. Again, as Phil talked so clearly about, we're made in the image of God, we're looking for spiritual reality. And there is an increasing appetite in our society for these things. I just say to you, get your television guide and just look through the number of programs that focus on the paranormal, the occult, communicating with the dead, there's a, a fantastic appetite. Why? Because we live in a society of spiritually hungry people. And when people see such things happening, things that they cannot explain, they say, wow, this is fantastic. They too easily accept them without asking where they lead, which is often to slavery and death. Spiritual death, sometimes physical death. 
And they stop to ask, where do these things come from? And I tell you this, here's the greatest tragedy of all. Christians and churches are not exempt. Because so often in our churches, we poo-poo these things, we push them to the side, and Christians are looking for spiritual reality. In some of the most frightening verses in the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of the great Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5-7, to you know how he concludes the Sermon on the Mount? He talks about the Day of Judgment. And he says, at the end of Matthew 7, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, do miracles and mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Now I tell you without a shadow of doubt, if someone stood up and did a miracle in the name of Jesus, very few of us would be prepared to ask, hang on a minute, does this person really know Christ? It is that serious. So, Paul is beginning here and saying, in this vital area concerning spiritual issues, it's vitally important you need, first of all, discernment. How can you determine the origin of something that happens? Supernaturally, especially here, in the area of speaking in tongues. And Paul tells us that the key the fundamental issue which determines the origin of what is being said is simply this, the person of Jesus Christ. The earliest and most fundamental statement of Christian confession is this, Jesus is Lord. The Jew would not say this, for he believed it was blasphemy to attribute that to any human being, let alone a carpenter from Nazareth who had been crucified under the Romans. The Gentile would not say Jesus is Lord because he believed there were many gods and lords. And the person who is under the influence of a demonic power through whom that power is speaking will never say Jesus is Lord but rather Jesus be cursed, anathema. For Jesus came to destroy the kingdom of Satan and his supporters, demonic and human. Only the Holy Spirit will inspire a person to confess that Jesus is Lord. Only God, King of kings, Lord of lords, supreme above all, besides whom there are no other gods, the only way, the truth, and the life, the only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Now, of course, this does not mean that no one could mouth the words Jesus is Lord, but rather that no one other than one born of the Spirit of God could truly own and worship Jesus as Lord of all. So, I simply say to you as a pastor who is committed unto God for your spiritual welfare, watch out for the showmen and women. You'll see them on the God channel. And ask, who is being promoted here? Who is being elevated? Who is getting the glory? And secondarily, who is getting the money? Even something quite simple like, count the number of times the person talks about Jesus. Not the number of times they talk about the Spirit. Because the Spirit's work, said Jesus, is never to speak about himself. He is given to speak about me, said Jesus, and to promote my cause and my glory. And that is the basic filter that all of us need to apply to all that goes into the heading of spiritual and even our modern obsession with that which goes into the name spirituality. Does it proclaim unequivocally 
that Jesus is Lord. And I ask you personally this evening, can you say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my Lord? Now that's the broad context with which Paul begins this subject for three chapters. We're just going to look at the next part. Now he turns to the specific subject of spiritual gifts and notice the second theme. They all begin with the same letter so you can remember them and so I can remember them. Secondly, the distribution of spiritual gifts which you find in verses 4 to 7. When you say the word spiritual or the word spirituality, it gives an impression of something kind of ethereal, doesn't it? Intangible in contrast to what is physical and real. But true spirituality for the Christian, where the Holy Spirit is at work, it is seen visibly. That's why he talks here about the manifestations of the Spirit. The word manifestations means making real and concrete something, making it visible and apparent. And that is seen especially in relationship with other Christians in the local church, which Paul goes on, and we'll look in our next study from verse 12 onwards, as the body of Christ. David Pryor, himself, charismatic Anglican, writes, to be truly spiritual, inverted commas, drives a person neither to ecstasy, nor to individualism, nor to otherworldliness, but into the life of the local church as an expression of personal commitment to Jesus as Lord and to his body here on earth. And if the local church is to look like the body of Christ, as it were, then it's essential to have all the necessary body parts that make up the complete picture. And that idea is developed in verses 12 to 31. However, before he turns to this, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the fundamental fact that it is God who delegates these different functions, who distributes these particular gifts to each individual. Look what he says in verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God who works all of them in all men. Just notice in passing, this is the earliest written statement about the three persons of what we call the Trinity. See it there? The Spirit, the Lord, Jesus, and God, the Father. Uh, the fact that this is stated without any comment or explanation shows that even at this early date it was accepted. You'll hear people say, Christians invented the Trinity in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. No, they didn't. They invented the term Trinity. But the Christians knew from the earliest days, one God, three persons. And these three persons have different, as it were, contribute differently, but it's the same God. Three ways of saying the same thing, but with a different emphasis. And the point that he's making is, God is the giver. As the main issue is spiritual gifts, Paul begins with the Holy Spirit who gives these gifts. Now we come to the specific word for gifts used here. The word used there, and you'll know the English derivation, the word used for spiritual gifts is charismata. In Greek, charismata, depending on how good your Greek pronunciation is. It's the word that we get charismatic from, and again in English it's come to mean something totally different. But it, it's, it's a Greek word that's made up of two parts, and the first part is the word charis, which is, means grace. It means God's gift that is totally undeserved. It's just given out of love. Interestingly, in modern Greek, the word charismata is the word charisma, is the word used for a birthday present. It's just a gift that someone gives out of love to someone that they feel something for. 
the analogy breaks down because it's not for your own benefit, but take the point that the point makes that it's a gift of love given by someone. So anything that we have, any gift that we have, if by some long stretch of the imagination you think, well, okay, Peter Granger can explain things, he's got some kind of gift of teaching. Or Philip Murray can lead and uh, Tim there is, plays the keyboard and Penis could sing it. All these gifts, whatever they are, and I just isolate those, whatever they are, they're gifts of grace. The church is not a venue for pop idol singers. We get pop idol singers in here, they only appear once. Until they begin to understand that their gift is given for building up the body and for encouraging all of us. They're gifts of grace, not of merit. And they're gifts that are used to serve others. And so he says, he goes on to say in the verses there, uh, there are different kinds of gifts with the same spirit, there are different kinds of service for the same Lord. The Lord Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the Lord Jesus gives the gifts, and the emphasis here is that they're given so that we can serve one another and not ourselves. And then he says there are different kinds of working, emphasizing the fact that it is God who energizes, empowers us to use the gifts effectively. God the Father empowers us to use the gifts in his strength, not ours. So, spiritual gifts are given by God for the benefit of the whole body, for the common good. Verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Paul Barnett writes, each recipient of a gift, ministry, energizing, is merely an instrument in the hand of God to serve others. No one can take personal credit for gifts, ministries, energizing. These are for the benefit of others. Now this is the great challenge to the Christians in the church in Corinth, who were using their gifts for self-promotion rather than for the benefit of the whole body. But it's a challenge to us, living in a society as we do, where people are encouraged to use their talents to get on, to get famous, and to get rich. And it is too easy to transfer this kind of mentality into the life of the local church. Instead, we should recognize that our gifts come from God. Paul has already reminded us of this in chapter 4. We just sang it in the preceding song. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so having focused on God the giver, Paul turns thirdly to the gifts he has given, stressing the third thing that we're going to look at, the diversity of spiritual gifts in verses 8 through 11. We're working our way through, we'll be there soon. Although God is one, God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he's a God of infinite variety. And although the body is a unity, there is diversity within the unity, seen in the many different gifts God has given to individuals. To each one, writes Paul, one God, great variety. Gordon Fee comments in his commentary, the unity of God does not imply uniformity in gifts. Rather, the one and same God is responsible for the variety itself. And Paul then lifts here, if you counted them as you're going along, he lists here nine different gifts. Strictly speaking, he doesn't define them as gifts. Did you notice that? He describes them in verse 7 as manifestations of the Spirit given for the common good. Now, all sorts of attempts have been made to systematize this list of gifts into different groups. 
And one of the most popular is gifts of instruction, wisdom and knowledge, gifts of supernatural power, faith, healing, miracles, gifts of inspired utterance, prophecy, tongues and interpretation of tongues. Unfortunately, it leaves out distinguishing spirits that doesn't fit in very well in any of those. Others see a mark break before faith in verse 9 and tongues in verse 10 because Paul uses a different Greek word for another. However, I think all of this misses the point. Paul is trying to correct the Corinthians who were focusing on one gift to the exclusion of all the others. That of tongues. So he gives what I think is just a random list of gifts to show that the work of the Spirit is far more varied than they have imagined. And he puts tongues and interpretation at the end to show that they're not nearly so important as the Corinthians think they are. So sample this rather than just one gift. Now Gordon Fee, I mentioned, is probably the best modern commentator. He wrote a good commentary on 1 Corinthians. He really worked hard at it. Gordon Fee is probably one of the best commentators and a Pentecostal to boot. This is what he comments. Paul's own concern is not with instruction about spiritual gifts as such, their number and kinds. Indeed, the list of nine items in verses 8 to 10 is neither carefully worked out or exhausted. It is merely representative of the diversity of the Spirit's manifestations. Paul's concern here is to offer a considerable list so they'll stop being so singular in their own emphasis. Now, I think there are two factors that make this the right interpretation. The first is that Paul lists other spiritual gifts in two other key places in the New Testament. If you're not a Christian and you don't know the Bible, just switch off for a minute here, because those who do will want to know what we're going to say about it. But if you look in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, and Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12, you'll see there are different lists of spiritual gifts, or different offices. If you put them all together with the gifts listed here, you'll find that the three lists have hardly anything in common. In fact, prophecy is probably the only one that they have in common. Again, there are those who have tried to systematise this. I've got a book somewhere that says there are 27 gifts of the Spirit all listed in three groups of nine. Don't find it convincing. Particularly when, as you remember, and this is maybe a surprise if you don't remember, that back in chapter 7, Paul says that marriage or celibacy are also charismatic gifts, using the same word. The other piece of evidence that supports the fact that 1 Corinthians 12 is not primarily an instruction manual on spiritual gifts is that, to be honest, we cannot be exactly sure what all the gifts are and what they meant, the ones that are listed here. It's interesting that as early as the 4th century, a great Christian preacher called John Chrysostom, commenting on this passage, says, It is very obscure, as these gifts have ceased, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. For example, look at the list in front of us. What is the message of wisdom and how does it vary from the message of knowledge? Literally, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. You can make an informed guess and say, well, one is a wise saying that's spoken into a situation and one is knowledge that is an insight into a particular situation. You can't be sure. The gift of faith is not saving faith, which all true Christians possess, but probably the ability to believe and trust God for great things. Gifts of healings. And miraculous powers are supernatural demonstrations of God at work in individuals and situations. Distinguishing between spirits may refer back to what we thought about at the beginning of the chapter. Prophecy, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, we'll come to them in more detail when we arrive at chapter 14. But Paul's main point is repeated at the end of this section. 
Verse 11, all these are the work of the one and same Spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Given to each one as God determines. All these gifts, and others not mentioned here, and I have to say for myself, I'm not at all convinced about distinctions between spiritual and natural gifts. Quite prepared to concede that Phil's artistic gift is a charismatic gift. I don't know if he thinks it like that, but I don't have any problem with that. All of them come from the same Spirit, not just tongues. And it is God who gives them and chooses which gifts he gives to which people because God is the giver. But, and here is the point, if you're a Christian, God has given you a gift or gifts to be used for the common good within the local church. Another commentator, again, if you want a a briefer commentary than a fee, which is pretty hard going, Craig Blomberg, there's the NIV um, series of commentaries on books in the Bible, and it's well worth getting one. If you're serious about it, This is what he says, it's on the screen as well. The range and functions covered by Paul's various lists of gifts make it likely that any combination of talents, abilities and endowments, however suddenly given or leisurely cultivated, may qualify as spiritual gifts if a believer uses them for God's glory and his work in the world. Then he goes on, a talent or ability only becomes a charisma when you recognize it as a gift from God and use it for the glory of Jesus and the benefit of the local church. So, if you're a Christian, what gifts has God given you? And are you using them? Because the only place you can use them is not for your own benefit. Won't work. Are you using them within a local church where you belong? And are they sanctified and being used in God's service for the common good of all among his people in a local church. Now let me conclude, and you've probably been waiting for this. What are we to make of this today and this particular passage, these particular gifts? There are two opposing positions held by Christians about these gifts. The first is that the supernatural gifts, what are called the sign gifts, were only for the apostolic age and that once the New Testament was written down and God's truth was preserved, they were withdrawn by God as no longer necessary. This is called cessationalism, if you want a long, complicated word for it. The opposite view is that all the gifts are available today for every church and any church which doesn't possess and use them all falls short of God's plan like a body with certain limbs missing. So, let me see if I can fall out with everyone. First of all, I cannot see in all honesty, without imposing some preconceived notion on Scripture, that you can limit God and the gifts that God chooses to give to his church at any time, in any church, in any age. Surely the whole point of the passage is that God, through his Spirit, gives to the church those gifts that he chooses to give and that we need. But, that also means that he gives as he chooses and not as we choose or demand. I do not think that what is described in Corinth is prescriptive. That is, this is a pattern for every church. In fact, I think if you look at the New Testament, you'll find that the churches were very different. I think Corinth was very different from Ephesus and from Colossae, the church in Thessalonica and so on. It's descriptive of the background that these Christians came from 
that had moved into their church and was relevant to them. So I do not think that every church should have every gift in operation at all times. Rather, God through his Spirit gives those gifts to each church as they need them and for the purpose for which they are intended. Just as he chooses. And that, for example, may be why supernatural gifts are more in evidence, generally speaking, in parts of the world where the gospel is going for the first time and people have no access, other access to knowing God's truth and certainly no scriptures. However, and you can email your objections to the chapel website on the way this week, um, the serious point is this. What should be evident in every authentic church is evidence of God's supernatural power at work in a local congregation by his spirit through the individuals that make up the body. So I ask you, is there anything about us that cannot be attributed to merely humanity and human designs and plans? What should be evident in every authentic church is evidence of God at work by His Spirit within a congregation, be it through a powerful prophetic proclamation of God's Word, or a powerful demonstration of faith in action, or whatever. And that is for God to choose and not us. We simply need to be open to the giver. And that is why these nine gifts are described as, verse 7, manifestation of the Spirit. What manifestation of the Spirit is there in our church? In my life. I conclude with a quote from the Danish writer Søren Kierkegaard, very acerbic critic in many ways, who commented as follows. Whereas Christ turned water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. This turned wine into water. Let's pray together.